At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Good morning. Uh, My name is Kurt McDonald, and uh, I have the great privilege of bringing to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Uh, Everyone uh, this morning in this room uh, shares a common desire. As a matter of fact, this is a a common desire that that all humans share everywhere, and and it's it's a desire that you have if you're uh, if you're old or if you're young, if you're if you're rich or you're poor, if you're black or you're white, if you're uh, from the United States or if you're from abroad. This is a common desire that humans have, and it's it's this desire to live a good life. That's a desire that, that everyone has. We, we all have this, this deep down desire to, to live a good life. At some point, we realize that our days are numbered. You know, like when, when you were a kid, you didn't think about that much. You know, all, all you thought about was, was playing and recess. And, but, but at some point, you, you step into this idea that I only have a limited amount of days. And so I want to make the best of my life. I don't want to waste this life that I have, this air that's in my lungs, this, this beating heart that's in my chest, I don't want to waste my life, and, and, and I want to live a good life. And so no one says, I only have one life, and my goal is to totally waste it. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Kirk, I know people who have intentionally chosen to waste their lives. And what I would argue is that they were actually functioning off of a broken definition of what it means to live a good life. All of us at some point decide what a good life is, intentionally or unintentionally. We all create this definition, okay? There's the goal. There's what the good life is. And so I begin to reorient who I am, what I say, how I think, what my goals are. I begin to reorient all of that so that I'm heading towards this goal, which I have created, which is the good life. Everyone does that, intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes this idea of what the good life is is handed to us from our parents. Our parents explain, hey, this is, this is what the good life is. This is what you got to chase after. Sometimes it's, it's a peer that says this is what the good life is and this is what you do. Somebody that's, that's influential over you. Sometimes um, something really tragic will happen to you and you decide, okay, now because this has happened to me, now I've decided that this is the good life and this is the direction that I'm going to go. Well, that poses two problems. First, many people are operating under a definition that they don't know that they've arrived at. What do I mean? Uh, I mean, everyone is operating off of an idea of what the good life is, whether they realize it or not. It's just some people just haven't sat down and really thought about it. 
The other great problem is you can have an idea of a good life that's a total lie. You can be chasing after something that's totally worthless, that's totally pointless, yet you've convinced yourself or someone else has convinced you that that is what the good life is. And so uh, if you're taking notes, we, we are bombarded with lies. And here are just some that I jotted down. The, the lie is the good life is free from conflict. Some people have in their mind that, that if I'm going to live the good life, it's going to be free from conflict. Everything's going to be easy. This is the type of person... Um, that hates getting into arguments. Uh, this is the person that wants to avoid serious debate and disagreement at any cost. Sure, they have heard that growth comes through adversity, but that just sounds really dumb to them. The, the, what, what they believe, the lie about the good life, is that it's free from conflict. If we can figure out how to get a life free from conflict, oh man, we'll be there. But, but that's a lie. Second lie, the lie is the good life is filled with acceptance from others, right? This is the person that is just constantly trying to please people. This is the people pleaser. They believe that acceptance from other people, man, if, if people will just pat me on the back and tell me that I've done a good job, then everything will be okay. If everybody likes me, this, this person also, they don't want to debate. They don't want to disagree. They want everybody to get along. This person finds it really difficult to make decisions, why? Because if they make a decision, then somebody might disagree with them, and then they won't like them. This person loves, loves when they get likes on Facebook and Twitter, right? Because that means, oh man, that means people like me, right? The good life is acceptance. How about this one? The good life is protected by the comfort of money. Oh, that, man, that is the good life. It's protected by, if you have money in your bank account, especially if you have a lot of it, guess what? The world can throw a ton of problems at you, and you know what you can throw back at those problems? Money. It, it, it's so comfortable. It, I mean, this is a safe place, right? We can, we can be open and honest. Doesn't it, doesn't it do something to your heart when, you're, when that big paycheck comes in and there it sits in your bank account and you think to yourself, okay. Everything can be okay for a little while. And, and we can begin to believe the lie that if I have a full bank account, that is the good life. I can pay for things. I can do what I want. Or, or how, about, how about this lie? The good life is where you take it easy. Oh, man, the good life is, is a, a drink with a little umbrella in it. I'm sat by the pool and people bring me food in Jesus' name, right? That's... In that the good, I mean, this is this is the person that's constantly thinking, um, like, when is my next vacation? Where are we going next? I just I just want to travel. I mean, the, the mountains are calling me. I need to be in a stream somewhere. I need to go to the lake. I need to. The, the good life is just taking it easy, going on vacations, and and so so you'll see that some of these can kind of interconnect here. Because if you have a bunch of money, guess what you get to do? You get to go on a lot of vacations, or you could just put it all on your credit card and worry about it later. Um, so, so we get these ideas or this thought of what the good life is, and we begin to, uh, to chase it. Or how about this? The good life is where I find success in my career. I, I finally win. I get there. I make it. People view me as successful. They respect me as successful. Um, I, I have people who work under me who, uh, you know, directly report to me and I move up in my company and I'm respected in my, my specific field and in my career. And, and if, if I do that my entire life, then, then I've lived the good life. I've, I've been successful in my career. 
Again, if you can, you can kind of combine some of these and if I can make a lot of money and be successful in my career, or if, if I can um, you know, live without conflict and people like me, then that's the good life. Look, here's, here's all of them combined together. If you only write down one, write down this one because this is the biggest lie. The biggest lie is the good life consists of finding what makes you happy and doing that as much as you can. This is the biggest lie that our culture is telling us right now. This is pop psychology 101. If you want to be happy, if you want to live the good life, you've got to find that thing, whatever that thing is for you, and you define it for yourself. Whatever it is, you find what makes you happy, and you just do that as much as you can. I mean, it sounds great. Put it on a bumper sticker. But if you live your life by it, it will be a wasted life. That's, that's the biggest lie that our culture is, is telling us today. And as a matter of fact, this isn't just a lie that our culture is telling. It's like, so that's not a new idea. You know that, right? Find what makes you happy and do that as much as you can. That's not a new idea. As a matter of fact, it's very, a very old idea. Listen to what Solomon has to say in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just, just listen to, to what he says. King Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Find what makes you happy is what he says. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Or uh, he's saying this also was completely pointless. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. He, he, uh, this is what's going to make me happy. I'm, he, he decides to run headlong into booze and pills, right? Drugs. He just, whatever can, can numb me out, make me not feel pain. I'll give that a shot. I said of pleasure, it is mad. What use is I searched how, uh, how my heart to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun during their few days of life. Again, he, he, how are you going to have a good life? That's what he's searching for. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made Pools from which to water the forest of my growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks and more than who had been in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of the kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and all wisdom remained with me. He had money, power, fame, and smarts, and concubines, I mean, women, and like, I mean, he had anything that you could list as an accomplishment, anything that you could chase after as the good life, this guy got it. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered, this is, just listen to this, then I considered the toil I had experienced, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. <laughs> if you, listen, if you're sitting at coffee with your friend and your friend says, I'm going to tell you what, you know what you need to just, just find what makes you happy and just do that. You say, you know what, the wisest man who ever lived, he did that and he said it was stupid. That's what you tell them. So, so the, there's, this, there's this way of living that says, I'm going to chase after what makes me happy. I'm going to do everything that makes me happy, and that will be uh, the, the good life. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The wisest man who ever lived says the exact opposite. 
If you're taking notes, jot this down. A life that terminates on our own personal happiness is meaningless. That's what Solomon just said in the book of Ecclesiastes. A life that terminates on your own happiness is meaningless. He said it's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. You ever try to chase after the wind? Did you catch it? (laughs) No, it's pointless. That's the whole idea. And so today in our, in our text, if you'll if just, just glance at verse 10, just glance at verse 10 with me. It says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, whoever desires to love life, you want to love life? You want to have the good life? That's what's on offer here. That's what Peter's talking to us about in the text today. You want to love life and see good days? Well, here's what he tells you to do. Um, don't, don't speak evil. Instead of doing evil, do good. That's the good life. That's, that's the pathway that we should be going down. That's the, that's the position in the future which we should be striving towards. You want the good life? Don't speak evil and do good. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's a bit broad there, Peter. Can you help us out? I mean, uh, is, uh, what do we need to do? Donate to charity? Uh, help an old lady across the street? Um, what does he mean, do good? Well, that's, that's verses 8 and 9. He explains to us what this good life is and what it means to live the good life. But here's what we must understand at the very outset, because, because what I've just held up is the idea that is given to us, the idea that is promoted to us by our culture, and, and I've put on the opposite side of it the idea which is given to us from God about what the good life is. And so before we even get into defining what God says the good life is, here's where we must begin. Again, if you're taking notes, jot this down. We must accept God's definition of the good life because he is the creator of life, and by so doing, we find blessing. We reject the culture's idea of what the good life is, and we accept God's definition of what the good life is because he created life. He's the creator of life, so he gets to define the parameters of life, meaning this. It would be a really bad idea if I took my iPhone and I tried to drive a nail with it because it's not designed to do that. That would be a really bad idea. It would also be a bad idea if I took a hammer and tried to send a text message. Hammers don't have keyboards. I can't send an emoji with a hammer, right? So so Mr. Jobs did not intend for us to drive nails with his iPhone, nor did Mr. Stanley or Eastwing, uh, you know, want us to send tech. Those are uh, people who make hammers just for you guys are like, huh? Um, So, so those guys did not want us to send text messages with their hammers. They wanted us to drive nails with them in the same way. God is the creator of life. Therefore he sets out in front of us or has designed for us this pathway to a good life or this pathway to a life that's not wasted or this pathway to a life filled with purpose. Church family, don't you want that this morning? Don't you want a life that's filled with purpose? Well, it's, it's laid out for us here in, in the scriptures. So, so let's do this. Um, let's go ahead and do our flyover, as is our 
custom, and then we'll come back through and, and take this text apart piece by piece. So, so if you've been with us, here's what we've been doing. We've been traveling through uh, the book of First Peter, which is our, our normal, uh, normal thing. We go verse by verse, line by line. And so what we've been doing is kind of giving this idea, this 30,000-foot idea of what's in the text, and then we're going to kind of come back and then just walk through it piece by piece. Can we do that? You guys ready to dive in this morning? All right. Amen. Amen. Here we go. What we're going to see in verses 8 through 12, it begins with this command, okay? Uh, finally, all of you, this is the end of a section. We'll get there in just a second. Finally, all of you, and, and then there's this, this list of, of things that he's calling us to be and to do. It, it, so finally, all of you have unity of mind. This is a command. All of us, you people, this, this is a letter written to churches. So he's telling the people in the church to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, right? These five things, this list that that he's putting out in front of us. I I want you to do this. It's a command, and this command actually demands an inward change. Be sympathetic. He's commanding you to feel something, which which causes an inward change. All, All of these, even the unity of mind, that, that's still a command to feel something, to, to feel united with the group of people you're doing life and in, in, in ministry and church with. Uh, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, all of those things um, are, again, in essence, a, a part of what he's asking you uh, to feel. Uh, did, we, did we lose the, the flyover? I can, oh, it's back. Cool. We got it. Now, what, what he says next is, it, it's a second command, and it's actually the big idea of the whole text, okay? So command one, all of you, do these five things. Verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Um, don't have a, a spirit of revenge. Instead of trying to get back at that person, bless that person. That, that's the, the second command, and that's, that's actually the big idea of the whole text. Don't be vengeful, but bless people. Be a blessing. So, so first command, be like this, this list of five things. Second command, um, don't repay evil for evil, rather bless people. How in the world are we going to do that? I mean, if, if somebody slaps you, do you really want to turn the other cheek? So on what grounds do we bless people who have done evil against us? Well, on the grounds of you were called to this. You were called to live this unique way. You were called to live this weird way. You were called to live in in this new way that people are going to think is totally crazy. You are called to it. And and we'll talk more about that. That's the grounds of of how you can actually not repay evil for evil. And then not only do you get the grounds for it that you were called to live that way, you get a motivation. What's the motivation? That you may obtain a blessing. Well, what's the blessing? Well, we'll talk about that. You gotta hang on. We're not there yet. Don't, don't get me preaching to you yet. Not, not yet. Okay, now, what, what, he, what he does next is he grounds, he grounds his argument here in the Old Testament, we, we've seen Peter do this several times. This is what he loves to do. He's going to give you a statement. He's going to explain some things to you. And then he's going to say, just like it says back in the Old Testament, we've seen him do that several times. And he's actually grounding this whole idea of this is how we should be. We, we shouldn't repay evil for evil. You were called to this. If you, if you live this way, you're going to obtain a blessing. And he grounds all of that in Psalm 34. 
I mean, I mean it's, it's, this right here is, is basically word for word, Psalm, a section out of Psalm 34. And, and, and he's saying, see, see right there? I'm, I'm just backing up what I said with, with Scripture. And through all of that, what he's explaining to us is the life that Christians are to lead. Amen? Does that make sense? You guys ready to dive into the text? Okay, no one is. Very good. I'm ready to dive into the text, so we're going to do it, right? I have the microphone. You have to listen to me. Here we go. Verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Finally, all of you. Finally. Uh, This is the closing of a section. This section started way back in chapter 2, verse uh, 13. Way back in chapter 2, verse 13, he began this whole section on submission, on sacrifice, the, the whole unit. And, and what he, he began to address citizens. Uh, citizens, if you, if you live under a government rule, be subject to that government. Be submissive to the government is, is what he began to say. Then he moved on to people uh, who were working as bond servants or who had employers, right? Their bosses. He said, okay, if, you're, if you live under a government, be subject to that government. If you go to work and you have a boss, uh, be subject to that boss. And then he moved down and said, okay, now I want to talk about the family unit. And, and he said, wives, be subject to your husbands. And then he addressed the husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So, so now that's taken us all the way uh, from, from 213 through uh, 3.7, and now he's landing the plane in this unit found inside of 1 Peter where he says, finally, all of you. So I'm not just talking to the citizens. I'm not just talking to the people who work a job. I'm not just talking to the wives. I'm not just talking to the husbands. I'm talking to everybody. Everybody listen up. He, he, wants, to, he wants to address all Christians that are in these churches. Finally, all of you, and here's what he says to them, have unity of mind. Have unity of of mind. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, does, does unity here infer uniformity? We, we all need to dress the same. We all need to talk the same. We all need to act the same. We all need to... Well, no, certainly not. That, that's not what, he, what he's uh, talking about when he's talking about unity of mind. This means having the same mindset. Th- this means uh, having unity without demanding uniformity. This means as a church body, actually and metaphorically, we should sing in harmony. We, sh- we should sing in harmony, meaning... Unison is a very powerful uh, form of music. When, when everybody is singing the same notes, that can be very powerful. But the true beauty of song and music really comes out when people are singing in harmony, does it not? So, so what he's saying is, I don't want you guys to be playing five different songs or three different songs. I want you to be playing in three-part harmony. As a matter of fact, I was, uh, I was at a conference uh, uh, in, in Albany, Georgia this week, and um, uh, the, the praise band got up to play on, on Tuesday afternoon, and there we were, a, a gathering of, of pastors and wives, and, and, and they all began to sing in unison. And when they went into this old hymn and split off into three-part harmony, I think I got saved again. Uh, I mean, I don't believe in getting saved again, but, but I think I, if I did, I probably did just then because it was so powerful when they moved from singing in unison to singing in three-part harmony. It, it was beautiful. It was uplifting. Why? Because each person was giving of themselves in their own unique way, yet doing it together. This is, this is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to focus on what the main thing is and chase after that together as a church body. 
Meaning this, um, listen, church family, we're not going to argue over what color carpet we put in the middle auditorium, okay? We're, just, we're not going to do that, right? That's, we're, we're not going to argue over what specific songs we play on Sunday morning. We're not going to argue over what, what the code of dress is here at the church. The, those things are not the main thing. The, the main thing for gospel community church is we want to make disciples, right? That's what, that's what we're going after. We want to know the Bible, share life, and bring hope to Fayetteville in the world. That's where we're headed, and we've got to be united in mind on that, yet bringing our individual gifts to that one particular mission so we're all headed in the same direction. Amen? That's what he means when he's talking about unity of mind. He wants these, these churches which are diverse in nature. They're diverse in socioeconomic background. They're diverse ethnically. But all of them have come together, united under one banner. That is the banner of Jesus Christ, united in that one mind to see God's kingdom expand. Have, have unity of mind. The truth is we need everyone rowing in the same direction. Everyone has their own gift, but we all need to be headed in the same direction. That's what he means when he says unity of mind. He also adds, <clears throat> adds this, not just unity of mind, but, but sympathy. He has this idea of sympathy. What, what does he mean? Well, well, it means feeling with others. It means feeling with other people. Again, this is addressed to all Christians, the Christians that are in the local church. He, he's saying that, when you get the phone call that, that, that somebody's rushing their, their little one to Eggleston, it means you feel for them. It means when, when our brother Nathan is not here this morning because he's sitting next to his mother's bedside and as she clings for life, it means we feel that. It means we have sympathy with him, for him. That's, that's what he's getting after, that, that when somebody gets laid off, that uh, when, when they tell you that they're in a season of deep depression and they just don't know why, when, 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 they're, when, when you communicate with each other the, the pains of life, we, because we are who we are, because we're Christians, because we're doing this thing together, we, we sympathize with and for one another. So we have unity of mind. We have sympathy. We have brotherly love. That's what he says next, brotherly love or a family affection. This is a deep connection to our forever family because that's what we are. But the church, the local church is a forever family. We're, we're going to be singing and doing this for a really long time. I want you to know that. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that's the end of where we're headed. All of us singing and praising God forever. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, gospel community church gathered together around the throne of Jesus forever with him. A brotherly love. And what that does is it stirs us up to love one another and serve one another even more. This is a deep family loyalty is what he's calling us to. Not, not a familial connection like you have with your, your weird Uncle Carl who comes to Christmas and Thanksgiving and that's the only time you ever see him and you avoid him because you don't want to talk about politics. Not that. This, this is a deep family connection, a close brotherly love is what he is, is calling us to. Not only a brotherly love, but a tender heart. I, I won't attempt to say the word in Greek because I'll mispronounce it, but, but what it means is it, it means good-bellied. That's what this word tender heart means. It, it, it means your guts. It's what tender-hearted means in, in the Greek. What it's getting after is 
you feel for and with that person deep down inside of you. It, it, means, that, it means that you're not harsh with people. That, that's what tenderhearted means. It means you're not harsh with people. It means that you understand that they've lived this life and you don't know everything that they've been through. It means that the things that you do know that they've gone through have wounded them, has, have caused them pain, and so you're really slow to snap at them. You're really slow to bite their head off. You're, you're really slow to criticize. Listen, th that is what is so terrible and sad about the reputation of Christians is that we are quick to criticize. We are hypocritical and quick to criticize. This text is actually calling us to the exact opposite, to be tenderhearted, slow to criticize, and quick to encourage, is what this text is saying that, that we should be. And lastly, it, and, and it's almost as if there's, there's bookends here. As, as I thought about this list, I thought about these, um, these five things all week long and kind of what what. Peter had in mind as he was, as he was connecting all of these. I mean, he, he could have put a lot, of, a lot of other things in here, but he decides to, to put unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He, he bookends um, th these two ideas of unity of mind, and then the last one is, is a humble mind. A, a humble mind. What does that mean? Well, it means that you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. It means that you realize that you're a sinner just like the person sitting in the pew next to you. Uh, it means that th there in the church, there are no platforms from which someone can stand on and look down on others. Oh, <laughs> I did my devotions this morning. How about you, brother? Oh, you didn't? <laughs> there, there's, there, there's no spiritual elitism in the church. We are all equally sinners saved by grace. So, so if you've come looking for a perfect pastor, if you've come looking for a perfect leadership team, a, a perfect deacon board, uh, you, you've come to the wrong place. We are a, a group. We are a body connected by this thing. We're all sinners in need of Jesus' grace. That's what connects us together. We're not connected because we're better than anybody else, because we read King James only, because we wear khaki pleated pants, because we you know, we're a part of this particular denomination, because we, we are connected under the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, be humble in your mindset. Now, I, I, I jotted it down this way. Maybe, maybe it would be helpful to you. I'll say it this way. Christians are united on our journey through suffering, serving one another as a forever family, because no one is better than anyone else. That, that's, how, that's how I've summarized um, all five of those things and tried to, tried to connect them together. So Christians are united on a journey. What, what do I mean? Well, I mean, we have unity of mind. That, that's out of that text, unity of mind. We're united on a journey through suffering, why did I include that? Well, because he's calling us to be sympathetic and tenderhearted. Why? Meaning the people in the church are suffering, going through hardship. Christians are united on a journey through suffering, serving one another as a forever family. Where'd I get that? Brotherly love. Brotherly love. Because no one is better than anyone else, being humble in our mindset. So again, Christians are united on a journey through suffering, serving one another as a forever family because no one is better than anyone else. Now, what he does next 
in this text is astonishing. And I'm just going to read the, the first part of verse 9. He says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Okay. Now, in my heart, I wish Peter would say something very different next. Now, I, I know I'm a pastor and I'm not supposed to admit this, uh, that the Bible was different. But um, so, so here is, um, here is the, uh, the, the standard Kirk version. It would say something like this. <laughs> the English standard curve version, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but just ignore them until they go away. I mean, would it, listen, wouldn't that, it would be so much easier, man, if that, if that's what it said, but, but that's not what it says. It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, on the, con- the opposite of that, the opposite of doing evil against someone, the opposite of reviling them, what's the opposite of that? The opposite is to bless them, to bless them. Now, if you want to level, let's level this up one more time, okay? So if that's not a big enough call on the Christian life, let's level this up one more time by remembering who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to a church, these groups of churches that were being persecuted, like a persecution that we know nothing about. Not only were they being called names, okay? They they were. Go back and read your church history. Um, Christians were called atheists. You know why? They were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. Um, Christians were called cannibals. You know why they were called cannibals? because they were drinking the blood and eating the flesh of a Galilean carpenter, right? Um, they, they, were also, they were also called sexual deviants. Now, this is a, you got to go deep into your church history uh, to, to understand this one, but what Christians were doing at the time is they were gathering for what they called agape feasts or love feasts in the church, meaning they were doing fellowship dinners like we do fellowship dinners now. But here's the thing. They had to hide because they were being persecuted, hunted, and killed. So what the community learned is that Christians were doing these secret love feasts behind closed doors. Oh, and, and, and they just, you know, took that way off, you know, down the track that way and began to call Christians atheists, cannibals, and sexual deviants. They were slandered in their communities. I mean, if somebody found out you were a Christian, they would laugh in your face. But even further than that, take it a step further, they were being systematically hunted and killed, thrown to the lions, killed by gladiators. They were losing their jobs. They were... And it's to that people, to that context, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. It's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. It, it, it's... It's hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to see how that could even be possible. How can that be possible? Why isn't he calling for them to form a militia and fight the government? No, he says, do not repay evil for evil. It's, it, it's really hard for us to understand. Practically speaking for us, what does that mean? Because the government isn't trying to kill us for being Christians, but... Um, our coworkers uh, may slander us for being intolerant or closed-minded because we adhere to the Bible. And so instead of trying to demean that coworker or get that coworker back, we don't repay evil for evil. Um, what that means is when, when your coworker makes you look bad in front of the boss because of their lack of preparation, 
you don't repay evil for evil. Rather, you decide and figure out how you can bless that coworker. Let's take it closer to home. Can we do that? It means when your spouse comes in, totally ignores you and dumps the kids on you, you don't, uh, when they come to bed, turn your back to them and create this giant wall of ice, this impenetrable wall of ice, and decide to uh, get them back. It means when, um, when your spouse verbally attacks you, you don't up the ante by saying, oh yeah, well I know what you did. Oh, well, how about last week when you, yeah, but you, yeah, but you, that's not what you said. What you said was, and so you're actually wrong. We don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, we bless. Our coworkers, our spouse, other church members who you feel like may have slighted you in some way. They didn't say, hey, when I came in. And, oh, and they're sitting in my regular spot? Uh-uh. It, it, means, it means that we, we adopt this radically different way of defining what the good life is. Not repaying evil for evil. Not reviling for reviling. That This is a warning against the spirit of revenge. Now, do, do you, did you see what verses 8 and 9 have in common? Okay. This is what I mentioned earlier. So what verses 8 and 9 have in common is this. They are commanding you to feel something. They're commanding a feeling. Question, how do you obey a command to feel? Right? Don't feel like you want to get revenge on that coworker. Don't feel like you want to take revenge on your spouse. Um, and feel sympathy when people in the church are hurting. Feel a brotherly connection to people that you may not like in the church. How can, how can Peter command a feeling? Um, again, th- this, is, this is a church where we, we just, we do our best to tell it like it is. I don't always feel brotherly love. I don't always feel sympathetic for you. Like you, you pay me to be your pastor and I don't feel sympathetic for you sometimes, okay? So how do we do that? How do, he's commanding this feeling. How, how can he command a feeling? Answer, verse nine again. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, for, to this you were called. You were called to this. How, how, can he, how can he command us to feel something? Because you were called to it. And we know, we say this all the time around here, whatever you are called to, Jesus will equip you for. You're called to this. You're called to this. You're called to this by the instruction of Christ. What do I mean? Um, we all know this verse. Come on. It, it, it's out of Luke 6. And, and Jesus said, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, you should... Turn the other. Um, he, Jesus in that, same, in that same section says, if anyone asks you for your cloak, also give them your tunic. Your tunic. Um, that, so, so you guys are looking at me crazy. You don't know what a tunic is. A tunic, uh, they, they had this linen thing that they would wear and they wore that directly next to their skin and then they had an outer cloak over it. And he's saying, if somebody asks, for you, asks you for the cloak, you give them the tunic too. Meaning you're standing there 
Okay, you put it together yourself. He's just saying that's the extent that you go to to, to give, to be others-oriented, to give your life away. If somebody slaps you, you turn the other cheek. So we're called to it by the instruction of Christ. In addition, we're called to it by the example of Christ. We're, we're called to it by the example of Christ. Just, just look up in, in chapter 2. I hope you have your text in front of you. Look up in chapter 2. It says this. I'm starting in verse 20. For what credit is it of you when you sin and you are beaten that you endure? But if you do good and suffer... For it endured, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look at verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. Look at this with your own eyes. For to this you have been called, is the word there. You've been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. An example. Christ called you to it in his instruction. If somebody slaps you, you turn the other cheek. Christ has called you to this in, in his example, meaning he went to the cross. He was reviled. He was, I mean, this was evil. That, but, but Jesus didn't repay evil for evil. And then lastly, you were called to it because you are a new light. You are a Christian now. Look at 2.9. Look at 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, called you out of darkness. You've been called out of darkness to live this kind of way. Jesus has opened up your eyes and shown you, if you're a Christian, that this way of living, this life you've been chasing after is totally pointless, totally a waste. And so here, focus on this. Be others-oriented. Give your life away to serve other people, to love other people. Don't let all of your entire life terminate on yourself. Be others-oriented. That's what happened when you became a Christian. Jesus opened up your eyes so that you could see the beauty and the value and the amazing life we've been called to live as Christians. You've been called to it, called to it. Now, for some of you, that's still to 30,000 feet, and you're still saying, I, have, I, I can't make that connection between the command to feel a feeling. Well, if you're taking notes, how do we go about obeying a command to feel? We're called to it. But practically speaking, we work with God in this way. One, we pray. Two, we practice. One, we pray. Two, we practice. So um, th this is the difference between the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. Can we do theology this morning? Okay. The doctrine of justification. God, when you become a Christian, God declares you guiltless. That you are justified before God. That's, that's justification. And that's something that only God can do. Only God can declare you justified. Now, there is also sanctification. Sanctification is the process in which we, we get rid of the sin in our life and become more like Christ. Now, that is an operation which you and the Lord do together. Justification, that's just God. He's the only one that can declare, declare you totally free from sin and, and, and justified. But sanctification is a process in which we do with God. We work with him to get rid of sin and to become more like Jesus. So this, this idea of obeying a command to feel is a process of sanctification. Are y'all still with me? Some of your eyes are glazing over. I'll get, I'll get back to it. Okay, so what do I mean? How do we obey this command? First, we begin to pray. And here's how you pray. Oh God, I am nothing like verses 8 and 9. Lord, I do not feel brotherly love towards this person in the church. As a matter of fact, they get on my nerves. I do not feel sympathy for this person. They got themselves into this mess by themselves. You acknowledge that as sin. God, I, I, forgive me, God, for feeling this way. These feelings 
are wrong and sinful. I should feel a unity of mind. I should feel sympathy, tenderheartedness, a brotherly love, a humble mindset, Lord. That's what I want to have, oh God. Would you get this mindset out of me and put your mindset into me? I need you to do this in me and with me, oh God. If you don't act, God, it's not going to happen. That's how you pray. Now, this isn't a pray and wait and see type of thing. Now, you need to pray. And sometimes there, it is a pray and wait and see type of situation. There are those situations. This is not one of them. This is where you pray, ask God to give you this type of heart, to give you this type of mindset, and then you practice it by getting into a room full of people that are hard to love. That's called community group. Y'all ever been there? Y'all been to a community group? People showing up late, got crazy kids. They didn't bring what they were supposed to bring. Y'all been to community group? That's exactly what community group is. This is, <laughs> I got too real. Did I get too real on that? That was too real. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I was calling people out. I didn't even know their names. So, so what happens is when you, when you get into that room full of people that are hard to love, now you're putting into practice what you have just prayed. You have prayed, oh Lord, give me a heart that is filled with brotherly love, that is filled with tenderheartedness for that couple who showed up late with their crazy kids that didn't bring what they were supposed to bring. You're tender-hearted now towards them. You, you understand. You understand that, that, they, that, that they've been visiting the hospital because their, their aunt is there. You, you understand that um, they're struggling financially and he had to work late and that's the reason why they showed up late. You, you understand that they're struggling to get by and the reason that, that they didn't bring what they're supposed to bring is actually because they couldn't afford it, but they're too embarrassed to actually say that. You're tenderhearted and you're filled with compassion and brotherly love. So you pray and ask for that heart and then you put it into practice. Amen? Yeah. Amen. That's, that's what this text is telling us. If you're taking notes, community groups, community groups are a vital part of our church structure, which helps you live a life of purpose by forming relationships with people whom you can love and sacrifice for. This is why it is so vitally important that you are connected to a community group. If you are not connected to a community group, you need to see me directly after church. I will get you plugged up with Charles Bird, who is the director over community groups, uh, and we can get you in a group of people who are hard to love in Jesus' name. Now, what this says next is this. We're, we're, still, we're still in verse 9. We got, oh, Lord, let me check my time. Not that it matters. I'll ignore it anyway. Okay. <clears throat> Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. Here's the motivation now. That you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing. Again, I, I, I know we've just made a lot of jest about community groups and but I'm, I'm almost certain I could begin to call member after member up on the stage from Gospel Community Church, and they would attest to the great blessing it has been to be others-oriented, to be others-focused, specifically when it comes to their community group. What it means to them, what a great blessing it has been to pour themselves out for other people, to not live a life that's focused on them, but to say, you know what? This is my church. This is my community group. And I'm going to love and serve these people no matter what. A brotherly love, a, a committed love. Here it is. I'm going to give my life to these people. 
There's great blessing there. There's great blessing there. What kind of blessing is there when you decide to be others focused? Well, there is a depth of friendship, which is the enemy of anxiety. There is a depth of friendship that you gain within the Christian community. There's a depth of friendship which is the enemy of anxiety. You know that someone is there. When you start to feel anxious and freaked out and going crazy, you know that you can call your brother in Christ. You know you can call your sister in Christ. They will talk you off of the ledge and tell you that God is your hope. He's got this under control. You can trust him. Everything's gonna work out because God loves you. There's a depth of friendship, which is the enemy of anxiety. What other blessings are they? Well, this is the kind of community where there is vulnerability, which is the enemy of loneliness. This is where you go into your community group and you sit there and you say, all right, I just need to be honest with everybody here. Here's what I'm struggling with. This is, I'm struggling to believe this is true about God. And somebody else in the group says, me too. And you go, really? You too? And they say, yes, me too. And what that vulnerability does is, is it's the enemy of loneliness because they've said it. Now you've said it and you know you're not alone. Do you see what a deep blessing Christian community is? To have deep friendship was the enemy of anxiety. To have deep vulnerability, which is the enemy of loneliness. I mean, this is, what, this is what God has for us. This is the blessings that we obtain through living others-oriented. These are the blessings that, that we obtain. Not only that, but there are actually blessings inherent in this text. This, as, as he continues to lay out uh, Psalm 34, as we read in verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's it. That's what we've been talking about this whole sermon. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good. See if you can see the blessing here. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. What type of blessings do we obtain? What's he talking about here? When we decide that we're going to live others-oriented, the eyes of the Lord are on us. His ears are open to us. What does that mean? His eyes are on us. Not, not just that he sees what we're doing. God sees what everybody's doing, right? <laughs> he's God. So what does it mean that his eyes are on us? Well, it means that he's looking after us. Not, he doesn't just see what we're doing, but he's looking after us. He's being true to his promises that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. He's being true to his promises. His eyes are on us. His ears are open to us. Can't God hear everyone everywhere all the time? Sure, he can. He's God. So what does it mean that his ears are open to us? It means that he's intently listening to us as we call out to him for help. Those, those are amazing blessings. Those are monumental blessings that we obtain when we say, I'm rejecting culture's definition of the good life. I'm accepting God's definition of the good life, which is to live in an others-oriented way. Last thought. I'll, I'll close with this, and I'm out of your hair. Last note. The good life, the good life is to serve my family, my church, and the lost world around me in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ for the building up of his kingdom. Church family, this is the good life. It, it's, it's not gaining celebrity status. It's not getting more followers on Twitter and Instagram. It, it's not getting a big bank account. It's not getting ahead in your career. What is the good life? The good life is a life of sacrifice and service. 
It's a life of sacrifice and service. What did Jesus model for us? Sacrifice and service. We begin by serving our family. This is the most immediate circle of influence that we have. As as moms and dads, as brothers and sisters, um, we, we have a family that we can immediately begin to sacrifice and serve. Outside of that, we begin to serve our church family. We go to a community group. We bond ourselves with those people and say, you know what? I'm just gonna figure out what needs are here in my community group and begin to meet those needs. I wanna encourage the people in my community group. I wanna pray for the people in my community group. I'm just gonna serve and give myself and my life to them. And then we say, you know what? Outside of that, we're surrounded by our coworkers. We're surrounded by people in our city, in our community who are lost and dying and going to hell. And so we say, how can we love and serve them? How can I sacrifice for these lost people so that they see the example of Christ and therefore want to follow Christ? And we do all of that. Listen, if that sounds like that, I don't know if I can do that. That, that sounds too monumental. It sounds a life of sacrifice. I mean, let's be honest. I like to Netflix and chill, okay? How can, I, how can I just devote my entire life to sacrifice? Well, you don't do it on your own. You do it in the strength of Christ. But by, by calling on his power, by calling on his spirit to fill you, to give you the strength to sacrifice. All for the glory of God. All for the growing of his kingdom. So what will we do? Monday brings a new day, another day where you're going to decide what the good life is. You'll wake up, you'll go about your daily routine, living in your definition of what you've decided the good life is. So what will it be? A life building your own kingdom, a life trying to get ahead, a life trying to be comfortable, or a life devoted to the example given by our Lord Jesus Christ a life of selfless sacrifice for the building of his kingdom, not ours. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that we would live in your strength and your example. May we shed off the cultural definitions of what the good life is, shake them from our minds and, and from our hearts. Lord, move far away from us the lusts of the flesh and the desires of a sinful heart that says, I want more, I want more, I want more. And shift our hearts to say, I want to give more, I want to give more, I want to give more. For in that, we will obtain the blessing, the blessings of a life of sacrifice, the blessings of Christian community, the blessings that you have for us in this life. Lord, I think about my daughters and how we often tell them, if you'll, if you'll do what daddy asked you to do, if you'll do what mommy asked you to do, life is just way better. And so, Lord, may we posture our hearts that way. May we obey you like our father so that we obtain these blessings. If, we, if we'll just obey you, life goes better. And that's what we call for now, Lord. We, we call for this good life, not a life free from suffering, not a life free from affliction, not a life free from disease, not a life with full bank accounts. No, no. But a good life, a life of sacrifice, a life of meaning and purpose, following after the example of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in that same mighty and powerful name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. 
Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.